Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. I want to issue a brief note of warning to listeners, something we've not done before, but this episode has some mildly graphic descriptions of burned cattle, including those that died and those for whom death might have been more merciful. If this will be uniquely difficult for you to hear, you can skip ahead in the audio when you get there. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today is Dave Daly a rancher in California and professor emeritus from Chico State, along with some other roles that he may talk about in a minute. Uh, He grazes on Forest Service ground on the Plumas National Forest and experienced a few years ago one of the worst wildfire disasters in recent history, at least relative to uh, the experience of a rancher. I'm prone to think about wildfire severity in terms of plants that were killed, soils that are made hydrophobic by high heat and uh, erosion from wind and water on an unprotected landscape after a burn. And those things are bad, and it's right to be concerned about that. But uh, Dave experienced some different kind of loss with, uh, with cattle killed by fire, and that's a different kind of thing. We sense that animals are different than plants. They feel pain and respond to other animals and humans. And I'm perhaps not being very careful about how I introduce this, but uh, I want I want people to to think about the economic and human costs of of fires. The North Complex fire of a few years ago uh, was one for the record books, and it left fire scars on people, not just on old trees. Uh, Dave, I may have to apologize for a bit of a sober introduction, but. Uh, I really am grateful for your willingness to talk about this, and I know you might be tired of talking about it. Well, Tip, in some ways I am because we relive it continually. Uh, the scars are still there, and, and in some cases it's more than the scars uh, because we still uh, deal with uh, both the economic impact and the ecological impacts of, of what happened. Uh, but it, it was. It, it was it, it certainly changed um, – our operation, it changed our family. It, it obviously took a big part of our history. When originally the Bear Fire, later the North Complex fires got even larger, um, just tore through our mountain range. And and I have, you know, stories about the animals, and we you can decide how graphic you want those to be and how hard that was for all of us. But you mentioned the, the landscape, and that's equally difficult. You know, we've been taking cattle to that land forever. And I, I valued those old trees and I valued those streams and, and the things that I knew and my grandfather knew and my great-grandfather knew that the fire of this intensity, it, it will never be the same. And, and I know, you know, each landscape's different and it would be different in a sagebrush or a juniper or um, maybe a high desert landscape. But in this landscape of a big timber, um, that these huge fuel loads, it basically cooked the soil. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's, there's not much left and, and I still see that. So it hits on lots of levels, I guess is probably the best place to, to say. 
Yeah, I've got more questions about that and about the maybe the media attention you've gotten. But let's start with some background on uh, your family and your operation. Uh, where we're talking about a fire, but uh, I even live in the West and I don't have a clear picture of where the Plumas National Forest is. Where do you ranch, and and how did you end up? being in the position of managing that ranch today because not everybody who was born into a ranching operation stays there. Right. Well, and I had other options. Obviously, I went on to, to Chico State originally for undergraduate and my master's and PhD were at Colorado State. But I, you know, I, when you're 22 or three, you aren't sure, but somehow it called me home and I knew it, it you know, you feel those things. And so I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to come back after a few years I was at Fresno State uh, for a few years and then was able to move north and lucky enough to be back in my home area and not only, you know, get involved with the ranch with my parents, but also buy and expand the operation uh, and continue to expand it with my my kids and my son and my two sons and my daughter. And so I, I've been very fortunate. You know, I worked hard at it, but it was something that was really critical. Um, to me to get back to this area. The Plumas National Forest is, um, it's the west, actually it's on both sides of Sierra Nevada, but we run on the west slope of the Sierra Nevada. So that's where all the moisture collects, where the big timber is. We're about 80 miles north of Sacramento and uh, people in the west probably know Red Bluff. Um, we're probably 60 miles south of Red Bluff, uh, but our mountain range, and we're in the foothills, that's where I, our home ranch is. So where we winter our cows, but our mountains are due east. Um, some people know where Quincy is, Sierra Valley. We aren't far from those areas, but the ecosystem is actually different. It's big timber country. It's steep. It's wet, uh, lots of snow, and then it goes dry in the summer. Um, so we're really a part of a, a, a multi-generational ranch when my family came here they came as miners in the 1850s and the cattle just kind of grew um they obviously didn't strike it rich or they probably wouldn't be running cows in the mountains right now but they came for <laughs> they came for gold um mm -hmm. and all this area um you know if you were north of the mark twain area if you wanted to think about the, the gold country and the mother load and we're right on the northern edge of that and that's what this area was actually mining and logging is where it was founded and then livestock came in after that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was visiting there for the first time, oh, six or seven years ago on a tour uh, somewhere in the foothills in that vicinity. And we were looking at some of the the hydraulic mining where they would take pressurized water and just blast off the side of a mountain. Yep. It's unbelievably destructive. Yeah, you probably weren't too far from I, – I know some of those areas where they – and. If you study history, there was a big fight between the hydraulic mining and the farmers in the valley because of the silt that moved. Um, we we kind of stayed mm. we we stayed out of that fight. The ranchers did. We were on the edge of it. But what mo most people may not know is, in the 1860s, there was a major major flood that basically covered 150 miles of the Sacramento Valley. It was about 20 miles wide, left everything in mud. There were no there, no dams to stop the water at that time, right? It left everything covered with mud, all the farmland, a lot of dead livestock. And so the livestock that were left started going to the Sierras. And that's actually probably about when our family, our early diaries say 1880s, 
uh, is when mm. we took cattle up. It's the only diary where I can see that record. But it was about at that time that we moved cattle to the high country. And many people did. Sheep and cattle started going to the mountains. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, so w- what happened with this fire? Yeah, I'm aware from reading some of the reports that the fire exhibited pretty extreme behavior. I think the Los Angeles Times reported that uh, the Bear Fire, and you can explain a bit about the the name change. I don't know if it expanded, that the Bear Fire killed 15 people. Yeah. Uh, how did the fire start and how did it progress and when did it come to you? What's interesting, it was actually lightning cause. Um, it was not man-made, but it burnt uh, for about a week on the north side of the middle fork of the Feather River in an area kind of – Bucks Lake is the general vicinity – and that's sort of um, a small resort community, summer cabins, nice homes, a lake. Um, but it was it started in a deep canyon. And the Forest Service said, well, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and they watched it for seven days or longer, burning in a pretty remote area down in the middle fork, which would be hard to get, but they didn't suppress and they didn't even attempt to suppress as long as it was moving away from Bucks Lake, which it was. Uh, But the forecast showed extreme winds coming. And I guess my frustration is we knew that, that there was going to be some major winds happen at about the same time as those winds started to kick up, other fires blew up in other parts of the state. So the resources were diverted to those areas. And uh, there was one uh, one further south, one closer to Tahoe, one more to urban areas. And I get it. But frankly, there was an opportunity to suppress this at a very small scale with if they'd used airplanes at, at an early area. And I think that that's partially my frustration is I realize there's choices we have to make. But by the time they decided to make the choices, they didn't have the resources. And um, I'm, I'm friends with the sheriff in, the ca- in our county, Butte County. Uh, this is the, the Plumas National Forest is in both Plumas and Butte. And he had kept calling saying, what's going on? What's going on? Is it going to happen? And they're saying not to worry, not to worry. And they called him that morning and said it could be in Orville by tonight. It was a, that's about 50 miles. Who's the they? Who's responsible for initial that's, fire response there? It was on the National Forest, so it is the Forest Service. Okay, got it. And the response was they didn't do anything. And um, I'm not angry at individuals because it's more policies than it's individuals. Yeah. Um, And so I I have a lot of friends in the Forest Service and I like a lot of the people, but their hands are tied by policy. And the policy, frankly, led to the destruction. And those 15 people were actually in the town of Berry Creek a little community um, on the edge of our range. Feather Falls was also destroyed. That's another town with one of the most spectacular waterfalls in the United States. It's a 600 foot fall. It's gorgeous. All burned, Hmm. all gone. Um, And so those 15 people lost their lives, so many homes, Um, but it tore through our country, our mountain range before it got to them. And it was both Forest Service land and Sierra Pacific who's my other landlord. I have two landlords in the summer. One is Sierra Pacific and one is the federal government, the United States Forest Service. 
And we got the call about the fire. We saw it coming. Um, I was actually a couple of hours away and my cousin called me and said, it's in the middle of um, an area we call the Lavatop in Bear Wallow, your range. I said, don't tell me that. I, I don't, I can't even conceive it could be there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine it had got there that quickly already. Mm -hmm. And um, so I called my son and I said, we got to, we got to head that way. But in your mind's eye, you cannot, there's no way you can even grasp the level of destruction. Um, but you try and you're thinking, well, maybe it burnt through a strip through the center of the range. You know, maybe parts of it escaped. Um, and we headed up there and it was dangerous and we probably shouldn't have been there. Everyone else was leaving, including mm -hmm. all the fire people. Uh, because they couldn't do anything. And we got, I'd say, five miles into the range. Uh, it's probably 20 miles by, or it's more like 25 by 10 mile that we're, we're on um, range. We got there and stopped by um, a friend of mine with Sierra Pacific. And then also the sheriff said, you got to turn around. It's around the corner. You, you got to get out of here now. Mm -hmm. And we had seen a cow with she calves, we couldn't find her baby calf and, uh, we had to leave her, obviously her and nearly 400 other cows and their baby calves all died. So it was, it was pretty rough. Um, and so hard because then we were locked out because, because it was still burning to even try and get back and do anything was, um, pretty tough. And for obvious reasons, safety, they, they locked it. They locked um, I mean, they roadblocks everywhere. Um, so we had to figure out how to get in, um, and try not to break the law at the same time because we mm -hmm. wanted to save what cattle may have lived. Um, and that was a whole nother drama that went on for two weeks, but we did save a few, um, by getting in there. And my thanks to the sheriff for arranging an, an escort to get me by the lines and then he, the roadblocks, and then he'd say, okay, Dave, don't do anything stupid. Well, um, I already had at that point, <laughs> you know, and, and it was just friends, family, friends, some of my kids, my kids came home, one from the army, one who's a veterinarian, my daughter's the vet, my son who works with me and we, uh, three or four friends, and we spent the next 10 days up there trying to rescue what we could. I was going to ask how long it took you to verify um, how many died and whether or not any were left alive. Well, we never found hundreds. Okay. You know, literally. Um, we found close to a hundred alive in some form or another and had to euthanize about 50 of those. Um, we tried to bring home some that we probably should have euthanized on the spot. And then more of those as the days went on and their hoofs left off or their hides peeled off mm -hmm. or they went blind or their udders were gone. Um, so we buried a lot of cattle here. We bring them home and that's a really hard thing to get them loaded, to find them and get them loaded and then come home and have to pardon me for being graphic, but euthanized means you had to shoot them because they couldn't stand up yeah. and bury them. Um, when you do 20 of those in a morning, that's a very sobering feeling. Yeah. Sticks with you a long time. Wow. Yeah. So we continued to work at it. And, uh, you know, we 
the ones we saved, we were hanging on to them. Some of them still have burn scars, but we feel they deserve a chance. And that's probably not a smart economic decision. You know, <laughs> when, when she calves the next year and only two teats are working because the other two were burnt off, um, you know, but you want to give them a chance because they made it that far. Yeah. Yeah. We did find a, a baby calf up there. This mother had died. We caught that and uh, we caught her and I gave her to my granddaughter and she made it. Um, we, my granddaughter was a few weeks old when this happened. So that, that heifer is now a cow and went back to the mountains and raised a calf. And she is my granddaughter's first heifer, but uh, she yeah. didn't have it. E she didn't have it easy. Wow. I'm sorry if I missed it. What was the date that this took off? Boy, the years run together. It was September 10th. Help me on the years. 20? Was it 2020? Uh, I think it was, or was it 21? Where are we to? Yeah. I think well, the LA Times article was published in October of 2020. Yep. It was September and it 10. it sounded like it was. Okay. September 10, 2020 is when it started. So we're... So we're exactly just over three years out now. Did right. you say you went, I'm wondering what the response has been, you know, how's the forest recovering? Have you been off the permit for the last three years? And uh, what does it look like now? We had to give up one year. Um, very honestly, Sierra Pacific has been really good to me. They said, if you want to go, Dave, go, but be prepared that we're going to be running 300 trucks a day down a narrow mountain road of loads of burnt logs. Salvage logging. Yep. On Sierra Pacific. So we couldn't go. Mm -hmm. um, the second year. So th that's the other problem is we lost a lot of our cow herd, but we also had cows that we needed to find a summer place for the cows that we did save. And we bought cows trying to rebuild and we really didn't have a summer home for them. So that's a second story is finding summer pasture, you know, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. The next year we took just a hundred cows as a test case. And then this year we're getting close. Next year, we'll probably go with full numbers again. I'm hoping, um, the landscape is really, it was a beautiful forest and it's really hard to go now. Um, we still mm -hmm. go, uh, and I'm not going to quit, but SPI basically took all the dead timber, which they should have done, except they can't along the creeks because of protecting repairing areas. So, you know Can't those better than I do. They had to leave a buffer, depending on how steep the stream is, 150 feet on either side or 50 feet. Um, yeah. So we have, and frankly, all that's going to fall in the in the creeks and the rivers. Right. Uh, but I get the rules because of erosion, so I understand it. It makes it almost impassable. And they've planted, I think, nine million trees. Um, it, three million a year for three years was the last number I heard. That could be more or less, but it's a lot. And so they planted conifers, uh, mixed conifers throughout because it, it varies in elevation. The mm -hmm. Forest Service, um, the federal lands really done nothing. Um, and I know they're buried in red tape. They started this year with a minor salvage project, 300 feet on either side of the one main road into the area. Um, and that's what they've done. Um, and Again, it's now the timber has no value. Um, so it will be piled and yep. burnt. And this was, this was gorgeous timber, big trees. I mean, the things that people typically mm. don't see, those big conifer forests, 
um, is gone mm-hmm. and it's now in piles being burnt along either side of the road. And the other 30,000 acres is falling down in the north wind. Whenever there's a big wind, there's going to be more. So even riding through it now, you're a little bit nervous. Uh, if you yeah. can find a, if you can find a way through the feeds coming within it. Um, so the cattle are doing fine. Um, pretty hard together, uh, pretty hard to get your way around. Um, I have a little video of some few strays we found late in the year when there's a snowstorm and a snowstorm, uh, in that down timber country is not exactly the safest place to be. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been around some places like that where you get, you know, three or four years after the fire, you get a little bit above average wind speeds and everything comes down all at once. Yeah. It would be, uh, it would be deadly. And, And I don't think people, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I get it when they see, when they don't see the destruction or the immediate threat, it's easy to forget. They think it's over. And frankly, I've had ranchers call me and say, well, the feed must be pretty good. You've had, you you know, it's three or four years later. Well, that means they don't understand the ecosystem. It's no fault of theirs. Some places it really does make the feed better in later years. And so I think the lesson to me is to always respect and understand that ecosystems vary dramatically and don't make judgments about one that you don't really know um, until you've seen it or lived it, or been with people who have, because it will be different. Um, you know, within California, and I know Oregon and Washington are equally diverse, you know, we have so many different climates here. And so it's, those ecosystems are going to respond differently to fire, different to fuel load, uh, different mm-hmm. to plant species composition. And so I, I hesitate to make judgments about another ecosystem until I've seen it. Right. On the east slopes of the Cascades and probably similar in the Sierras, you know, you get a cooler ground fire that kind of licks through the understory and doesn't take out trees. That tends to have a positive benefit, a positive effect on at least the herbaceous portion of the plant community. Uh, but we, you get, do we you have get a forest any, with a lot of stands. Mm-hmm. Do we actually have any spots where there's been enough uh, uh, burning of the understory that is still open. And I only say that somewhat facetiously, but our <laughs> country, when they started suppressing fire, you get that much rainfall. There is so much, they eliminated the use of fire as a tool, you know, starting in the early 1900s. And there was so much fuel load that now you get a crown fire every time. There's no, right. there's no fire. There's no opportunity to take that fuel load out the way we should. Yeah, I think this is one of my main questions for you. Um, you know, in this in this part of the world, along with other similar climate regimes and plant communities in other parts of the world, is is prone to wildfire. I moved out here from Arkansas, where you've got growing season precipitation, and it's a pretty unusual thing for stuff to dry out enough that it would actually burn. But but in much of the West, we have fire-prone conditions every single summer. That's just what summer is. And so, you know, you have you have some ecologists who would say uh, we should just let it burn. I'm saying that crassly. I realize that they have reasons for saying that and let nature reset. And I think it's probably true that we can't get away from uh, in, in this part of the world. We can't get away from fire as one of the primary disturbances that that maintains things. But but how do we go about doing that, especially in places where we've got a century of accumulation of fuel, you know, 
I guess in this case, we're mostly talking about the large woody fuel. But you've got other people who have you know, the usual credentials that say that's no longer an option ecologically, much less politically and economically, because the risk to human lives and human infrastructure, uh, like what you just described, is too great to not take an active hand in, in managing when and where and how these plant commu- communities burn. So maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but um, yeah, I th- I two questions. One, I, I want to speak to the risk that I'm running in exacerbating the media attention to this, uh, even though I'm a range extension specialist, I don't consider myself the media, uh, but you've gotten lots of attention because of the magnitude of the loss. Um, and this was covered by some pretty big news outlets, national news. But uh, did did the news come to you because of the extreme character of the fire, or did you reach out to deliver a message? And I, both of those are, I think, likely. Uh, not everybody's willing to talk to reporters and endure photographers and <laughs> deal with news videographers. Uh, right. So one, did, did they come looking for you? Uh, why did you answer the phone? And uh, if you have a message, you know, what is that? Yeah, that that's loaded because there's lots of questions in there. So if I miss one, just come back and we'll go through it again. Sure. Uh, I actually wanted to get the story out in some fashion, but it wasn't, I never expected it maybe to go as far as it did in, in it other ways. So I'm not a social media user, big surprise. I'm an old guy. Um, I'm not a big fan of it either because of some of the things I see and I'm not interested in what people <laughs> had for lunch, to be honest. Um, yeah. so, but I did write that and I, I wrote, um, something cause I wanted to capture immediately what happened. And, um, I asked my daughter to put it on Facebook cause I don't post things. Uh, just because I wanted people to know the magnitude and that's when it blew up. Um, Mm. there were 30,000 comments, I think on it. And it was international. It was from Australia, from Canada, from Europe, from Latin America, but very heavily, obviously towards the arid West, but, um, and everybody had an opinion, um, but I wasn't seeking attention. I just think the story needed to be told. And I don't think anyone yeah. has told it. So I, I'm somewhat uniquely equipped to do that essentially because, or primarily because I had two professions. I consider myself a cattle rancher first, and I love the natural resource space. That's what I do. But mm-hmm. I was also a professor and communication is what I do. I traveled extensively and I've spoken in other countries about livestock production. So communication is part of who I am. And I was president of California cattlemen. So I had some connections in Sacramento as well as Washington, DC. And I, I guess I wanted to see change. And I know that is tilting at windmills. It's not going to happen quickly. It could be 10 years, but I, don't think the narrative was um, told from the perspective of someone who lives on the landscape. You know, it's often, and this isn't a criticism tip, but often from academics or from politicians, but rarely from somebody who was directly affected, who has the ability to communicate about it. So yeah, I wanted to see change and I still do. And I, I would say, I think I'm seeing some small progress 
Um, but I think your comment about, you know, there's, this is complicated, <laughs> you know, put out the fire, mm-hmm. don't put out the fire. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and unfortunately it's polarized people who are on the same side of the issue. We got to do something, you know, but now they've chosen sides. Like I'm a prescribed fire user. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> y- you're going to let it get away. And, you know, I can't get insurance. Well, it's because you haven't cleared the brush around your place. And, and what I see is unfortunately is nobody looking at the middle ground and say, what can we do? I mean, you know, at a different level, and I don't mean to compare them directly, but, you know, the Great Depression had the, the New Deal. We've, we're going to start a big program. Well, I haven't seen, I've seen small steps, but I haven't even seen big steps on saying, how are we going to do this differently? And it's partially because people, don't agree on what to do. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 any of those who don't agree, I would just love to take them to the destruction I've seen mm-hmm. at, at that level. And I think it changes. So no, I didn't reach out to the LA times. The LA t- times reached out to me. I didn't want to take anybody with me up there. I really didn't, particularly a photographer or a reporter. Um, but some of my friends in Sacramento said, Dave, you can you, will you, you know, it was like day 10 or 12 and yeah, I was exhausted. People need to know. Yeah. I was exhausted and grumpy and I'm surprised there aren't more cuss words on in the interview, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was hard. And, but if, if it wasn't captured, then it probably wouldn't be captured. It was still pretty raw. It, well, yeah. we were still in it. Um, but I figured if I didn't do it, it would never get done. So, I mean, it's just part of what I had to do. And I also don't want to make this about me. I mean, my loss was significant, but the town of Berry Creek's gone and 12 people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they are still frustrated that they cannot get support with all the disaster preparedness and all all the disaster funds. Those people, in many cases, are still living in motorhomes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there hasn't been that much support. So I, I, the issue is huge, but I really feel it's out of sight, out of mind. And we forget unless it's us or it's close to a town, Uh, but isolated areas where this is going to happen and then it's going to burn towns and homes. um, Nobody sees them. That's why they're isolated. Right. Um, And that's where the fuel loads are building every day. Yeah. You mentioned there's a need for policy change. Uh, You know, the, the, the obvious, the obvious things to be addressed are forest management, fire policy, grazing to manage fire risk, uh, and and of course this is not new. I can't remember where it was, but I ran across a, it was a proceedings of some national fire and forest symposium, and I'm reading this. You know, it's talking about research needs and establishing policy. And I was pretty sure that the proceedings were from 100 years ago. It sounded so much like a current discussion that I had to go and check the date. And I think it was uh, it was like 1914. It was after whatever year was the big fire in the Pacific Northwest, uh, 1907 or 10 or something like that. But the, in many ways, the conversation hasn't changed. And, and in the intervening century, we have had additional accumulation of of fuels and maybe not a lot of change in policy. Uh, I agree with you. I, I feel like the, the thing that I like about the extension role is that I feel like there needs to be some of us that have one foot 
in academia and one foot in the real world with people whose livelihoods depend on making sound decisions in this space. Uh, and, I, and I like being there. There's also not very many people who have both uh, you know, natural resources, uh, I guess, knowledge and competency and animal science. And I ran into one of those recently and we're going to interview him pretty soon. But uh, you are one of those people as well. And I feel like they often have pretty good advice because they see maybe more sides of the elephant. So if, if you had some recommendations, uh, what are your feelings about what kinds of policy changes are needed uh, in terms of forest management, fire, grazing, uh, all of that, and maybe something I'm not thinking of? Yeah, the, a huge subject, and there's so much to be done, And but y you don't start, you know, it's the old the old cliche of eating an elephant one bite at a time, right? If we don't do anything, we're going to be in the same place. And I, I do think it's absolutely critical that we keep this in front of people and work for any simple solution. I mean, I really would like to see a program that invests in people who would work on the landscape to make a difference. And that means it's, and unfortunately, it's so expensive. And if you have to go through an environmental impact statement, and at some point, what I would like to see is say, these are areas that are so prone to burn. We're going to make change. We're going to do something that streamlines the process to allow people to do it. You know, I've made suggestions here in California, which again, it, it depends on the budget when it happens. But if you're going to spend money on suppression, why aren't you spending it on prevention, which is much cheaper? And that, that, you know, those are the, the urban interface things where we talk about home hardening. I'm talking actually fuel load mastication, mastication, thinning, actual yeah. use of prescribed fire at appropriate times. And we could do it. There are windows in the fall here, late fall, that we could actually make some progress. And we have to do it at scale. And so far, it's not at scale. It's just, mm -hmm. I'll call them, you know, we're going to take out five acres here. Great. But the thing I do see is I think the narrative is changing and more people recognize the severity of this issue. And that's what's going to take. The public's going to have to step in and say, we've got to do something. These fires are starting on federal land and then they're burning to private land and then they're destroying our homes. So it's going to have to be a real aggressive approach because frankly, the, the size of the bureaucracy, the Forest Service, they won't make change. Um, and it's... They're going to get sued if they try, and I feel bad for them, but we have got to be more aggressive on getting back to using fire as a tool, but we have to reduce fuel loads before we can. And that's almost, you know, that's a contradiction, right? But we're, you know, I, yeah. why, why aren't we going back into these areas that burnt, that severely burnt, and they're going to come back with brush? And why don't we put a fuel line around those and use those as places to not let that brush take over again? right? Because they've already lost most of the fuel load. So every 10 years, maybe you can go through and actually do something and manage them. But we yeah, and I think the social thing. barrier is a bit of a double whammy because we, we have both uh, sort of, a, I guess, a mindset or a paradigm in the world of natural resources management, at, at least up until pretty recently, that uh, that said, if we just if we just leave it alone, then whatever happens will be healthy and and that'll be good. And I'm only half apologizing for calling that, you know, do nothingism, or you know, what Barry Perryman has called the the pristine myth paradigm. I think we're coming back around 
in a couple of different ways to, re- so the, the double whammy is we have this idea that if we just walk away and let it go, it'll fix itself. The other is that we have these institutions that are large enough that uh, there are significant policy barriers to doing anything and to letting local people make management decisions. Uh, and the two of those things together has proven to be, I think, not a great recipe for a national forest. Uh, and then at the same time, we also have this increasing recognition that people, that humans probably did a lot more to manage these landscapes than than uh, we have been willing to acknowledge, you know, prior to um, smallpox wiping them all out right. a few hundred years ago. So we, we come into these places that look like they're uh, untouched. Uh, untouched forest that's because they have been untouched for some time but they weren't prior to that no well i i see that i mean my family you know the story that i grew up on was last man out lights the forest on fire right the forest floor to clear it mm-hmm. and that was native american that was a logger that was a miner that was a rancher it didn't matter but that's what you did and i grew yeah. up on those stories and it was a much more open landscape at the time but i did i testified a couple of times to congressional hearings on this issue and on one of those, um, I, I'm trying to remember, uh, the Democrats were in charge at the time. So there's three Democrats, one Republican on. Um, not that I, I, I consider myself kind of a centrist, almost an independent. That's where I fit. Um, but I was the R representative. But there was one academic on there from, I believe, University of Washington. And her thing was never touch it. That's okay. It doesn't matter how it burns. That's what that that's nature. No, it's not. You know, we've had managed landscapes for thousands of years and, but I don't like to defend politicians or regulators, but I do put, if I was in their role, they're hearing both sides of the issues, generally from extremists and very Mm -hmm. rarely from the center. I did the same thing. I testified to a congressional hearing in Yosemite, a field hearing on this issue. And it was the same thing as people are politically extreme and who suffers are those of us who live on the land or care for the forest because mm-hmm. nobody wants to compromise and come to a middle ground. They're sure they're right rather than there's a middle way to look at this. Yeah. I want to go back. Maybe maybe we'll end on something besides politics, uh, even though that's an important discussion. And for listeners who are new, I would refer you to a couple episodes with uh, with Rick Knight talking about the radical middle and the importance of spending some time there because we probably have some things to learn from each other. Uh, but for you, David, as an animal science guy and, and a, a rancher, and maybe I repeat myself, uh, how did you go about setting up a new cow herd? If you're looking to buy animals or somehow establish a new herd from scratch, uh, yeah, not the logistics of what did that look like, but how would you go about choosing breed genetics, uh, mature cow size? That's a most, you know, we don't, we don't usually go about things by just starting from all the way from scratch. Well, it wasn't entirely from scratch. It was, uh, we had kept our first calf heifers home, uh, okay. and some of our old cows, and maybe I would say some of our problem cows, um, <laughs> that maybe had a disposition issue. I didn't want to chase them through the country. Um, so it wasn't ideal, but we did have a little bit of a base there. The second part was really hard. I mean, I sourced cattle on top of that. It's an economic issue. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's cows I would like to have bought that I couldn't afford. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're stuck. Um, and I was trying to find cows that could function under pretty harsh range conditions. Uh, I mean, when I say harsh, that's probably, um, we have what I would say are easy winters, you know, good green feed and pretty, pretty simple. And the summers can be tough if those cows are not acclimated to that environment because they don't know what to eat. They don't know where to be. Um, so the first year can be really hard. So it was difficult. And I, I had some, I would say swings and misses with that. I bought some cows out of Montana that were pretty well, some heiferets that, you know, maybe a little bit of an attitude to them, but they were at least used to range conditions. They weren't, I would call them soft inside cows. And then I had bought some cows that I probably couldn't take to the mountains because they were too soft. And so it's, I'm still searching on that. We're getting to where now we have enough of our own heifers coming back in that have been acclimated out of my bulls that, you know, I still think, honestly, I still feel like I'm three years out. I mean, I was looking at buying some cows last night and then the economics of it, they're really expensive right now. And so, yeah. you know, it's all those, you know, it's running a business and, um, and it's emotional at the same time. And so what you might want to do, you may not be able to do economically. And so you kind of, as I said, hit and miss. Here's a load of cows that look like they'll work. Oh, they did. Here's a load of cows that look like they work. Oh, they didn't. And um, it's a slow process. Um, I, I still honestly, with that kind of devastation, you know, if it was a, a normal range where you could go back the next year and nothing changed, you could buy cows lots of places. Mm-hmm. But it's not. So it was much harder. It's a whole to new do. world. It's a whole new yeah. world. And so you, what I really need to do is raise them. And I'm getting closer. I was just talking with my son this morning about how many replacement heifers we might be able to keep um, just so we can start building our numbers again. But you still have to pay the bills. So you got to sell something. So it's it's an interesting, interesting balance. Yeah. And how maybe just a final question here. Uh, how is your family doing with it? And what are the summers like? I'm just, I'm just imagining putting myself in the situation of, you know, having, having cows up there in the middle of the forest in the summer. And I think that if I had experienced what you've experienced, I would start to get a little bit itchy when fire season arrives and you've got lightning storms or, you know, 4th of July camping crowds that are up on the forest. Uh, How has that been for the rest of your family? It's, it's still difficult. I think my oldest son, Kyle, who's with me most of the time, we're getting acclimated a little more uh, because we've had to after being up there for a couple, three years. Um, my daughter and my youngest son, Kate and Rob, uh, it still shocks them when they go up because they don't go as often. Um, mm-hmm. It's finding uh, places that um, you thought you knew and now you're lost because they don't look the same. I, I don't worry about fire too much because there's frankly nothing left to burn. Right. And, um, the crowds have disappeared because it's ugly up there. Um, yeah. You know, the, the campgrounds are, are basically non-existent. Uh, you'll still find a tough guy or two. I ran into a, somebody fishing up there a month ago and he did really good. He goes, nobody comes anymore. (laughs) So so he's the one guy who maybe was happy with it, but it's a very um, hard place to go. But my family um, doesn't want to quit. And that's now the next generation, the grandkids. So every year we always took a camping trip 
up there and would work on our little corrals and catch pens. And we'd stayed there since the kids were very small and um, they wanted to go back. And it was really hard because you're camping in basically in ashes and dead timber in places mm-hmm. that were very beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't stop. And they said, we're going to go. Um, I won't say it's the same, but the my little grandkids, they won't know any different, unfortunately. And hopefully yeah. they'll, they'll watch some beauty grow um, and see it change over time. And maybe when they're 65, which I now am, um, they'll still be going there and, and find some beauty in the kinds of things that I knew. It will never be the same in my lifetime. Maybe in my grandkids' grandkids' lifetime, we'll have figured this out. And, and it will be. I hope so. Yeah, I do too. And hopefully a few things will change in the meantime. Uh, I think we'll leave it there, Dave. Sure. Thank you for what you do and for being willing to talk about this and for forcing a discussion whenever you get the chance of saying, you know, we, we can't just ignore these things. We can't wait until they burn down a town and kill a dozen people. We've got to be uh, working on it all the time. Well, Tip, if you ever get down to this part of Northern California, I can show you the landscape. It's it's kind of hard to look at, but um, until people see it, you know, I took a bunch of the governor's staff up there, um, including Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Natural Resources, and several others a year or two ago. And I think it really finally resonated the level of destruction that we are experiencing in the rural West. And I hope that more people can actually pay attention because it impacts them, not just me. Very good. I appreciate it. Thanks Thanks again, Dave. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.